Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday life. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to continue that today by looking at Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 to 18. Jesus is speaking to the crowds and he says, his, his disciples rather, and he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil in your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, uh, in his uh, song, Pray, uh, the pop singer Sam Smith sings that everyone prays in the end. It may be a slight exaggeration, but as Tim Keller writes, though prayer is not literally a universal phenomenon, it is a global one, inhabiting all cultures and involving the overwhelming majority of people at some point in their lives. The need or desire to pray seems to be a common human instinct, and despite holding widely different and indeed contradictory beliefs, people of all religions pray. As Keller points out, Jesus seems to suggest that the infallible test of spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. I can't help but wonder if the disciples felt that something was lacking in their own experience of prayer, for it's they who, without any prompting, asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Given that they were all Jewish and had been brought up hearing prayers and praying, that's quite remarkable. Prayer was very much a, a part of everyday experience for Jews and they had set times for prayer uh, as is indicated in the text and they also had set prayers to pray at those times and on different occasions. But I think the disciples asked him not simply because he was their rabbi but because having spent time with him they saw, heard and understood that compared to their own experience of prayer there was something very different about how Jesus prayed. 
Unlike the prayers they'd grown up with and had heard all around them, Jesus' prayers were deeply real, intimately personal and powerfully effective. The fact that they asked him tells us something about Jesus that highlights the priority of prayer in the spiritual life. We shouldn't miss the fact that God incarnate felt the need to pray. All four Gospels are agreed that Jesus was a man of prayer. It was woven by habit into the fabric of his everyday life. And if Jesus prayed, then how much more should we? Secondly, Jesus clearly believed that prayer was both powerful and effective. If he believed otherwise, there would have been little point in him praying. And thirdly, Jesus clearly expected that his followers would also pray. For he says, when you pray, not if you pray. Prayer then, according to Jesus, is necessary. It's necessary, first of all, for the personal transformation that we need to live spiritually enriched and enriching lives. As Richard Foster writes, prayer catapults us onto the frontier of the spiritual life. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. Prayer is also necessary for us to experience the power of God at work in and through our lives. Jim Simbola once said, spiritual power comes through experiencing God's presence. And God's presence is found in sustained prayer. It's interesting that Jesus never taught his disciples to preach, but he did teach them to pray. Notice though that he didn't teach them about prayer. He taught them to pray. Reading books or listening to signposts like this one might hopefully be helpful, but if you want to learn to pray, then the best way to learn is to do it. The, the prayer that Jesus, the model that Jesus presents for prayer for it, surely that's not a prayer to be repeated uh, Sunday by Sunday. It's a, a model in which we can shape our own prayers. That prayer itself can be understood in a number of different ways. We can see that it speaks about our relationship with God. Our Father shows that we have a child-father relationship. Hallowed be your name shows that we have a deity-worshipper relationship. Your kingdom come shows that we have a sovereign-subject relationship. Your will be done shows that we have a master-servant relationship. Give us this day our daily bread shows that we have a benefactor-beneficiary relationship. Forgive us our debt shows that we have a saviour-sinner relationship. And lead us not into temptation shows that we have a guide-follower relationship. But this prayer also speaks to the proper attitude and spirit of prayer. Our reflects an unselfish attitude. Father reflects an attitude of family devotion. Hallowed be your name reflects an attitude of reverence. Your kingdom come reflects an attitude of loyalty. Your will be done reflects an attitude of submission. Give us this day our daily bread reflects an attitude of dependence. Forgive us our debts reflects an attitude of penitence. Lead us not into temptation reflects an attitude of humility. Yours is the kingdom reflects an attitude of triumph. And the glory reflects uh, an attitude of exaltation. And forever reflects an attitude of hope. 
but it also demonstrates that there is a, a threefold pattern or shape to prayer. To hallow God's name, to bring in God's kingdom and to do God's will. It also shows us how prayer encompasses all of time. Forgive us our debts encompasses our past. Give us this day encompasses our present and lead us not into temptation encompasses our future. We should also notice that from every perspective, the, the model of prayer that Jesus presents here is focused on God, which is striking actually because most of our own prayers focus on us and our circumstances. In just a few short verses, Jesus provides us with a pattern of prayer that takes the focus away from us and helps us to refocus our thoughts on God, on his greatness, his will and his purposes. Now, I don't want to say too much about the, the last four petitions in this prayer because their meaning is actually filled out more fully in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll, we'll get to that as we work through it. So today I'm just going to take a, a closer look at the first three petitions in uh, the prayer. It begins with the invocation of our Father. Now, if any of my children call me by my first name, I tend to tell them off because there are only three people on this entire planet that can call me father or dad. And I think that's a privilege that they shouldn't treat lightly. But more than that, calling me dad speaks of a unique and intimate connection and relationship between us. By beginning his model of prayer by telling us to pray to God as our father, Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, is inviting us to experience the same intimacy with God the Father that he experienced. He's inviting us to enter into that relationship. Our brother Jesus is giving us permission to call God our Father. We shouldn't think that since he is our Father in heaven that he is in any way distant, remote or far removed from us. The word heaven refers less to the place and more the idea of God's rule and reign, where his will is done completely, as the prayer states. Jesus is affirming that God the Father is God, that he is sovereign ruler of the cosmos, but he is also present with us in a deeply personal way. And so to the petitions, well, he says, Hallowed be your name. The first petition links back to four specific passages in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 to 7, uh, 45 verses 9 to 17, 63 verses 15 to 19 and 64 verses 7 to 9, all of which refer to God as Father. They also speak of God in heaven and of God's name. The opening petition also echoes a prayer common in the synagogues of Jesus' day. Like Jesus' prayer, it emphasised the name of God and begins with the words, Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime. So the common prayer of the synagogue and Jesus' prayer both begin by telling us to hallow God's name. But what exactly does that mean? Well, hallowing someone is to consider that person holy, to give them the proper proper reverence uh, uh, that they are due. And in reference to God's name, that has particular meaning. In ancient times, 
a name meant a good deal more than it does today. We just use it as a designation, something by which to identify uh, someone to call them by. But in ancient times, a person's name, uh, character and qualities were bound up in some way with their name. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we find that Mary's baby was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. In other words, the name and the activity went together. The prayer then means more than that we should use the divine name with suitable reference, although it does include that. But it also means that we should be reverent before all that God is, all that God does, all that God stands for. God's name represents all that he is. And we can see this even in the various names that are given to God in the Bible, for example, just a few of them. Uh, Elohim means the creator God. It tells us that he's the one who has created the cosmos. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord our provider. You know, I think it's in John's Gospel. Uh, John the Baptizer says that no one can have even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Um, Jehovah Shalom means the Lord our peace. Shalom means more than just um, the absence of conflict. It's it's the fullness of well-being that is associated with the, the, the presence of the kingdom of God. Each name, uh, and there are many others, reveals or describes in some way an aspect of God's character, who he is and what he is like. The greatest revelation and meaning of, of God's name is, of course, Jesus. Uh, in John 17 verse 6 he says I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Everything that Jesus said and did revealed the glory of God, his character and nature. In John 1 and 14 that we're told that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How have we seen it? We've seen it because of Jesus, because we've seen Jesus, the word became flesh. And, you know, God's name expresses everything about his character and nature, all that he is. And it is seen most clearly in the life of of Jesus, the only begotten Son. Hallowing God's name begins in the heart and it extends to every aspect of our lives. Let us not limit this aspect of prayer to simply not taking God's name in vain, whatever that actually means. Because to hallow God's name means so much more than we might think. In Martin Luther's Greater Catechism is the question, how is God's, how is God's name uh, hallowed among us? And the answer is given when our life and doctrine are truly Christian. Now by that Luther meant that we hallow God's name by not believing anything that's inconsistent with what uh, he himself has already revealed about his character and nature, especially in his self-revelation in Jesus. So we hallow his name when we uphold the truths about his character and nature that the name reveals. Secondly, he meant that we hallow God's name by living in a way that is consistent with all that his name stands for. Our faith is not merely a set of doctrines, an internal belief. It is also a lived experience. In Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
The Lord's Prayer itself confirms this by connecting the hallowing of God's name with our Father and his will being done on earth as it is done in heaven. To come and gather as a church on a Sunday to sing God's praises, then go out on Monday and live without thought or regard to God's name and all it stands for is hypocrisy. It is not hallowing. We hallow his name most of all when we live uh, in the light of all that it stands for. Second petition is that God's kingdom would come. Well, I think we often pray for God's kingdom to come without really thinking about what that means. The coming of God's kingdom is connected to hallowing his name, of course, for anyone who hallows God's name will, by definition, seek to live as a citizen of the kingdom and work to see it expand across the earth. As you've already noted, whenever the Bible speaks about God's kingdom, it's not speaking about a geographical location. Rather, it speaks of the sphere of God's rule and reign. It's, it's wherever God's reign and rule are made manifest. Reflecting on the previous chapter in Matthew and the passages from Isaiah that correspond to it, we can say that there are seven key characteristics to God's kingdom. Firstly, there's God's presence, often seen as spirit or light. Deliverance or salvation, peace, healing, joy, the idea of a return from exile, which Jesus interprets as a return to God in salvation. And of course, righteousness or justice, uh, as, which is associated with it. The person who is praying for God's kingdom to come is praying to experience the reality of these seven characteristics in their own life and then beyond as they live in the light of these characteristics and practice them uh, and, and display them then on into the communities in which we live. For once we become aware of the characteristics of God's kingdom, it becomes apparent that they are lacking in the worldly kingdom in which we live. The world does not recognise or honour God and we are called to, to live in the light of his kingdom for his, the, the, the aspects of his kingdom to be manifest in us then in, and as we live in the community to be manifest there. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come we are praying that his presence will be known that he will bring his deliverance and salvation into our community, that he will bring his peace into it, he will bring his healing and joy, that many will return to him and that his justice will prevail in our community, in our nation. In short, we are praying for God's rule and reign to become manifest in our midst. And by praying for these things, we are also committing ourselves to work for them to become a reality. Third petition is that your will be done. A term that's translated here as well is Thelema and it can indicate God's purpose and desire or command. Preachers often note that where God's rule and reign are completely manifest, his will is done fully and completely and immediately. You know, the angels aren't sort of uh, re responding to God when he commands them to do something by saying, OK, God, I'll, I'll get to that. I'm just reading the paper. When I finish the paper, I'll do what you command. No, when God commands, his command is carried out fully, completely, immediately. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And that, that's kind of the idea. Um is, is Jesus submitted himself to the will of God the Father 
In fact, at the outset of his ministry, he declared his allegiance, saying, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Everything that Jesus said and did was to fulfil that declaration bound up in hallowing God's name and praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, his purposes fulfilled. When Jesus directs us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he invites us to imagine something. As Glenn Stassen puts it, he invites us to envision conflict being resolved. Marriages and families healed, truth told, and people faithful to one another. Initiatives that break through the vicious cycles of retaliation and love that creates new community among people through forgiveness, reconciliation and peacemaking. The will of God, as it announced in the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, directs us towards breakthroughs of this kind. In directing us to pray this way, Jesus invites us to envision ourselves participating in such breakthroughs in such a way that we will work to make that dream a reality. The words of this prayer then are so familiar to us, perhaps too familiar. All too often we miss their depth and the challenge that they really present to us as disciples both to pray and to act in accordance with what we are praying for. Yet this is the model that Jesus calls us to use to shape our own prayers, because this is the life that Jesus calls us to live. The Lord's Prayer is one that we are meant not to repeat then, but rather to use as a template, for it gives Jesus' disciples the right priorities around which to shape their own prayers and their own words and actions. That we will, what we are praying for, will become a living reality in our own lives and in the life of our community. That God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that as you uh, reflect on that, uh, that you will find your own prayer life becoming deeper and richer and effective in your own life as you seek to live as a disciple of Jesus. Thanks for listening.